0: Listen to these words once again just verses 1 through 3. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. And let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. And your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Isaiah is both a prophet and a poet. As a prophet, he speaks the word of God with inspired authority. He writes about events that are still in the future. A great change is going to take place for the people of God. This change cannot come about through the power or skill or strategies of men. The prophecy can only be fulfilled through the gracious, sovereign power of God. But because it is the power of God that stands behind this promise, Isaiah speaks with great certainty and anticipation about what is going to happen. And as he does so, he uses language that is very poetic. Lots of figures of speech, dramatic imagery. And here he uses a metaphor that grabs our attention and helps us connect and sympathize with this person He's describing, he wants us to think about a woman who is barren. She's unable to have children. And that calls to mind all the emotional baggage that goes along with that. The sadness, the disappointment, the longing. We can imagine for just a little bit, here is this woman who has wanted to have children all her life. When she was a little girl, she played mother with her homemade dolls. She dreamed about the day when she would be married and start to have children of her own. She thought about what their names would be, how she would hold them, how she would care for their needs and comfort them when they were sad, and teach them and nurture them, and eventually watch them grow into young men and women with families of their own. And now she is married, she's been married for many years, and her dreams have never been realized. Instead of bearing and raising children, she has known years of disappointment, false hopes, sleepless nights, crying out to God and asking why He doesn't give her this one thing she wants more than anything else, and her arms are still empty. And her heart is as empty as her arms. But now, after all these years, she is hearing a word of promise from the prophet of the Lord. And he's speaking to her with great emphasis and great drama. It's not just, hey, you're going to have a baby, as joyful as that would be. He begins speaking in the form of a command. Sing! But this is not one of those commands that makes you feel like, oh no, this is what I have to do. He is, uh, He's telling her why she's going to sing. It's a song of rejoicing. Because this woman who has never born children, who has never had the experience of being pregnant and being in labor, she's fixing to have kids. And not just a few, she's going to have a big, big family. Well, that's where he begins in verse 1. And he adds more details and more drama as he goes along. He compares her new position to the women in the village who have already had their families for some time. This woman has probably struggled with envy towards some of these other women. Right? In fact, uh, there there may be that one woman... Who is always calling attention to her own wonderful children and dropping comments that probably aren't very helpful and even making you wonder if some of those comments are directed intentionally toward you? Well, God is telling you that you are going to have more children than her. The children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who was married. In fact, you're going to have so many children that you're going to have to do something about your house because it's too small. That's what he says in verse 2. Enlarge the place of your tent. You need to make some more room. Let the, cap- let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Don't hold back. It's time to go to Tent Depot or Tents R Us or whatever home improvement stores are available in the ancient Near East because you need some really long ropes and you need some big sturdy stakes to secure this big tent that's supposed to hold all your, all your children. And it gets even better than that. Because your children are not only going to be numerous, they are going to be victorious over their enemies and take possession of lands and cities and all the wealth that implies. The family will be so blessed that its influence will spread far beyond the city of its origin. The mother is told her offspring will possess the nations. And that's why this previously barren woman is told to rejoice and break out into singing. Okay, that's the analogy, that's the figure of speech Isaiah is using. What does it mean? Why does he use this particular metaphor? And what significance does this drama have for us, who, after all, live some 2,700 years after Isaiah wrote these words? Does it have anything to do with the mission of Redeemer Church here in White Settlement? Does it have anything to do with your volunteer work at the Pregnancy Help Center? Does it have anything to do with reaching out to prostitutes and drug addicts on the streets of Fort Worth? Does it have anything to do with those we send out to minister to Muslims in the Middle East and other parts of the world? Well, we need to get the answers to these questions from the context of all of scripture, the Old Testament context, the context of the book of Isaiah, and especially the New Testament interpretation of the fulfillment of this prophecy, which is where we're going to end up today in Galatians 4. But before we go there, let me try to lay out a map of the ground we're going to cover by organizing it under three points. The first two points help to show us why Isaiah is using this particular metaphor, why it's so appropriate. And the third point uh, helps to sort of tie it all together by showing us how it's fulfilled and how we fit into this whole picture. So, the first point is this, and see it on the screen there. Isaiah draws from Israel's law to demonstrate her pitiful condition. Isaiah draws from Israel's law to demonstrate her pitiful condition. The word that we're paying special attention to here pops up in a significant passage where God is making His covenant with the Israelites at Mount Sinai. It tells them of the blessings they can expect if they will serve God faithfully and remain loyal to Him. So let's go to Exodus 23. And I think I want to start reading in verse 20 for a little bit of context. Exodus 23, 20. God speaking to Israel through Moses. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces." Verse 25 starts to describe some of the blessings that would come to them as a result. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. And then in verse 26 is the particular blessing that I want us to notice. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. Now, of course, when we follow the history of Israel in the Old Testament, we see this promise does not come to fruition because Israel does not live up to the terms of this covenant she's given. Instead of obeying God's voice and receiving the covenant blessings, things like fruitfulness in childbearing and victory over their enemies, they turn away from him and receive the covenant curse. Covenant curses like they're warned about in Deuteronomy 28. Cursed will you be in the city. Cursed will you be in the field. Cursed will be the fruit of your womb. And cursed the fruit of the ground. And this is exactly the message Isaiah is driving home to his own people in his day. Israel, you have been unfaithful to your Lord. And look where it's gotten you. I mentioned earlier he uses a variety of of figures of speech. In chapter 1... Isaiah says the nation is like a person who is sick and wounded all the way from the sole of the foot to the head. She's full of bruises and sores and raw wounds that have not been treated or bandaged or cared for. The city of Jerusalem is compared to a prostitute, chapter 1 verse 21 because of her moral violations. In chapter 5, Israel and Judah are compared to a vineyard that should have produced good grapes for its master and owner, but instead it only yielded wild, worthless grapes. So God says He was going to remove the hedge that surrounded and protected this vineyard. It was going to be devoured, and its walls broken down and trampled, and instead of being pruned and cared for, it would become a wasteland full of thorns and briars. Later in the book, Isaiah will compare his own nation to a woman who has been divorced by her husband, a captive slave woman, and a bereaved widow. You can see what all these analogies have in common. Israel is reaping the consequences of her unfaithfulness. She is a desolate, forsaken, dejected object of pity. That's the woman that's being told to rejoice. Because something is going to happen that will change everything. And that brings us to our second point. Isaiah points to Israel's past to illustrate her future hope. Isaiah points to Israel's past to illustrate her future hope. This takes us all the way back to the book of Genesis. And I think this is pretty striking. All three of the great three patriarchs, the first three ancestors of the nation of Israel, are all married to wives who are originally barren and unable to have children. So this is actually the first three times this word barren is used in the Bible. Genesis 11 we're introduced to Abraham and Sarah. Their names are different at the time. Abram and Sarai were introduced this way. Now, Sarai, Abraham's wife, was barren. She had no child. And, of course, that is the most well-known example of a miraculous birth in the Old Testament. It receives special attention in the New Testament in passages like Romans 4 and Hebrews 11. There's also Genesis 25... Uh, twenty one and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, that's Rebekah, because she was barren. and then genesis twenty nine thirty one when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. and that's a reference to the two wives of Jacob. So in all three of these cases, God shows that it is he who opens and closes the womb. And of course, that's always true for every woman in history, but it seems uh, here that God goes to special pains to put his power and his sovereignty on display. Of course, there are other examples in in the Old Testament of women who are unable to bear children, and then God miraculously gives them a child who becomes a great warrior or prophet, for God's people. There's the mother of Samson and Hannah, the mother of Samuel. So anyone who is familiar with the history of Israel can look back at these examples and see how God has acted at crucial times in the story of his people to deliver the mothers of Israel from barrenness and disgrace and defeat. And God is saying here through Isaiah, that's what he's going to do for the whole nation. That's what is being communicated in Isaiah's words. Israel's barrenness was, her her metaphorical barrenness was the result of God's judgment, the consequence of her unfaithfulness. Now God is going to act to reverse her condition. And that's really the same idea that we see all the way through this chapter, chapter 54, with with slightly different language. Israel had been ashamed and confounded and disgraced, according to verse 4, but now she will forget the shame of her youth and the reproach of her widowhood. In verses 5 through 8, she is described as a wife deserted, and grieved in spirit because she has been cast off by her husband. But now she is going to be restored, remarried, and gathered in with great compassion and everlasting love. And from verse 11 to the end of the chapter, we see that she had been afflicted, tossed about by storms with no one to comfort her. Now she is going to experience great prosperity and peace and victory over her enemies. So this is the dramatic change that God's prophet says is going to happen. But how does that take place? Well, that brings us to our third and final point, which is really the most important and the most crucial of the three. Number three, Isaiah looks to Israel's Savior. Isaiah looks to Israel's Savior to guarantee her great transformation. I want us to see a progression that happens three times that I know of in the book of Isaiah, so I don't think it's accidental. This is not the first time that the prophet tells someone to sing. Okay, back in chapter 42, verse 10. I'll give you just a minute to uh, to turn there. In 42, 10, he is speaking to sailors of the sea and inhabitants of the coast and of the cities and villages of the desert. Generally, it's people who are far away. And he tells them to sing to the Lord a new song. Well, why? There's a reason for this, just as there was a reason in chapter 54. The command to sing in chapter 42 comes immediately after a passage about the Lord's chosen servant. So look back in verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And he keeps on saying things about this this servant that emphasize the worldwide scope of his mission. Verse 4. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for His law. End of verse 6. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. The worldwide victory of God's kingdom is accomplished through the work of this servant. And that's what makes the far-off nations rejoice. Let's look at chapter 49. 49, uh, verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. Again, it is, the, it is the servant of the Lord who is speaking here, and he is repeating the promise that God has given him. Look at verse 6. He's repeating the words that, that God says to him. He says, God says to me, the servant says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Okay, that task is too small. It's not a big enough project. Here's what he's going to do in addition. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Here's the work of God through His chosen servant. If we keep going down in this passage, according to verse 7, the servant is deeply despised. He is abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, but kings are going to bow down and prostrate themselves before him. And this one is going to deliver prisoners from darkness. He's going to lead them along the heights and provide them with pasture. And he says in verse 12, These shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene, which uh, seems to be a reference to the southern border of Egypt. So we've basically, it, it looks like he's going in a circle around the four points of the compass here. And then verse 13 gives... The command of response. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. Here it's not even the people of the nations who are rejoicing, it's the physical creation itself. You see this pattern? There's the work of the chosen servant, he extends the rule and reign of God to the nations, to the ends of the earth. And the result is songs of rejoicing. So now we go to chapter 53. The best known and most loved of all these servant songs of Isaiah. The passage actually begins in chapter 52, verse 13. And again, there we are introduced to this person known as the servant of... Of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. But notice what happens as the necessary precondition of his exaltation. Verse 14 His appearance is marred beyond human semblance his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they shall see, and that which they have not heard they understand. And that's a verse that Paul quotes in Romans 15 to refer to his own ministry, speaking the gospel to those who have never heard. Well, the description of this suffering servant continues as we move into chapter 53. It's words that you're familiar with. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He is oppressed and afflicted. And within the context of Isaiah's message to the nation, the servant is actually entering into the affliction of his people. Isaiah says, He has borne our griefs and carried... Our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. He is cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. The servant of Yahweh bears the sin and judgment of his people. And then verses 10 through 12 describe in we might say veiled language. The results that come to pass because of his suffering. It's the reward he is granted or the accomplishment he brings about. And notice particularly uh, verse 10. He, that is God, this is the, towards the end, almost the middle of verse 10. He shall see his offspring and prolong his days. In other words, length of life and a promise of descendants. Okay, I want us to see this. He takes on the forsaken, rejected condition of his people and brings about the reversal of that curse. He gains for himself and his people a new position of great reward and great blessing. And part of that new elevated position is the promise of a continuing seed or offspring. So we need to see the parallels and connections as we move into chapter 54. This is why the people of God, represented as this previously barren woman, are told to break forth into singing and cry aloud. This is why she's going to have so many kids. She is going to be restored to her husband. And verse 5 tells us who her husband is. It's her maker. The Lord of hosts reunites with His unfaithful bride. And through that restored union, the bride and the groom receive all these children who are going to inhabit inhabit the nations and inherit the earth. The bridegroom is both the Lord and the servant of the Lord. We know that to be Jesus Christ. The bride is the people of God, once cast off, but now redeemed and restored. So who are these children that they are given? Well, we actually, we don't have to guess and try to come up with the right explanation or interpretation on our own. The answer is given to us by the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 4. So let's turn there now. Galatians 4. Just to give a little context, remember Paul is teaching against the error of the Judaizers who want to place the New Testament people of God back under the Old Covenant made at Mount Sinai. So in this passage, beginning At verse 21, he makes a point from the book of Genesis about the two sons born to Abraham from two different women. I want to pick up in verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. One is born through natural human means, one through the miraculous power of God. Now, verse 24, now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. So Paul is illustrating here the difference between the old covenant made at Mount Sinai and the new covenant established by the work of Jesus Christ and founded on God's promises to Abraham. Remember back in Isaiah 54 verse 10 God speaks about a covenant of peace that will never be removed and His steadfast love that will never depart from His people. That's not the covenant He made with Israel at Sinai. According to the terms of that covenant, he did withdraw his loving favor from them. He wrote them a bill of divorce, and that covenant relationship came to an end. Let me read about that in Isaiah 50, Jeremiah 3. Well, here in Isaiah 54, he's promising a new and a better covenant. An everlasting covenant established through his son, the suffering servant. And in Galatians 4, Paul is making the case that as long as the Jews of his day placed their confidence in the law, as long as they looked to the old Mosaic covenant as the basis of their relationship with God, And as long as they found their identity and pride in their earthly ancestry, going back to Abraham, Paul says they're still in slavery along with their children. Their status is that of Ishmael, the son of Abraham according to the flesh, who turns out to be a rival and a persecutor against the son of promise, the son of the inheritance. So, the point he's making is about the present earthly Jerusalem, the Jews of Paul's day, who looked to Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, Israel's laws for their relationship with God. And that's in contrast to what? Verse 26 But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Not the physical city of Jerusalem. Not the nation of Jews here on earth. The Jerusalem above is our mother. So we who place our faith in Jesus Christ have a new heavenly Jerusalem um, as our mother. Well, where does Paul get that idea? Well, he tells us in verse 27. For it is written... Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. That's familiar, isn't it? He's quoting from Isaiah 54 and showing us the true identity of who is in view in that passage. The people of God have undergone a transformation because of her union with Christ, the suffering servant. The book of Hebrews chapter 9 speaks about this servant and says he has entered not into holy places made with hands, that is, human hands, not the earthly tabernacle, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Through his sacrifice, offered not in the earthly tabernacle, but in heaven itself, the heavenly bridegroom makes his people a heavenly bride or a heavenly city. And the members of that heavenly city are called her sons and daughters. And that's where you and I fit in. We are the children. We are the children given by God's power and grace to this woman now told to rejoice in Isaiah 54. We have not yet seen the final form of what that is going to look like. But the fundamental change has already taken place. The people of God are no longer limited to a particular ethnic identity. The place of her tent is is in the process of being enlarged right now. The curtains of her habitations are being stretched out now. She is already spreading abroad to the right and to the left. And if you belong to the family of God by faith in Christ, you are a testimony to this very fact. Brothers and sisters, this gives us Reason to rejoice, doesn't it? We are on a mission. And it turns out this mission is probably more difficult than many of us imagined. That's true when we're talking about reaching Muslims in the Middle East or impacting our community here in white settlement. And I admit there are times when I am discouraged from pursuing opportunities for the gospel. Because I think, oh, this person has already heard. Their mind is already made up. It's not going to do any good. I confess there are times when, it, when that has an impact on my prayer life. What does that say about my lack of faith in the power of God or His willingness to act The God of Abraham is the God who gives life to the dead and calls things and calls into existence things that do not exist. The God of Abraham can raise up children for Abraham from dead stones. That's what he has done for you and me. Brought us to faith, brought us into his family. Do we think it's too big or too hard? Or God is unwilling to do this even more? There may be another reason that we fail to rejoice in the riches of God's promise found here in our passage. Remember, the people of God are given a heavenly identity, according to Paul's inspired interpretation of Isaiah. The bride of Christ is told to rejoice because she's receiving all these sons and daughters and taking them into her tent, and we've got this huge population growth in the heavenly city. And maybe we don't think it's really that big of a deal, because the truth is we're pretty happy with our earthly city. Air conditioning and Netflix make this a pretty comfortable place. Maybe our vision of the heavenly city is being blocked by the pretended grandeur of our earthly habitations. Maybe that's why we find it hard to invest in heavenly things. Often it seems like just a little sacrifice is too much. We're willing to go So far, up to a point, many times largely out of a sense of duty, and then we reach the point where we think we've done enough and it's unreasonable to expect us to do any more and we start to feel resentful toward anyone who does ask for more. We start to go through hard times and what Paul calls this light momentary affliction feels to us like a crushing heavy weight instead of the eternal weight of glory that he says is beyond all comparison. I'm afraid this is because we have learned very little to seek and to set our minds on the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Our passage today calls us to do several things that I believe, directly affect our role in God's worldwide mission. Number one, these are three points of application. Number one, remember. Remember. Remember your pitiful state when you were cast off and excluded from God's family. Remember the hopelessness of trying to relate to God based on your own accomplishments or achievements. Remember the power and grace of God that drew you to Himself and made you part of His family. That leads us to number two. Rejoice. Rejoice. Renew your joy morning by morning in the knowledge that your covenant Lord has taken part in your affliction to make you take part in His reward. Rejoice in the privilege that comes to you to be a son or daughter of the union of Christ and his bride. Find peace and security in the assurance that your relationship with him rests on what he has accomplished for you, not the other way around. Find certainty in the final fulfillment of all his promises your inclusion in the family of God is one stage in the expansion of His kingdom worldwide. Your heart of unbelief was no match for His sovereign, gracious power, and neither are the the hearts of Al-Qaeda or ISIS or Kim Jong-un or anyone else who thinks they can stand in the way of God accomplishing His purpose on earth. And finally, number three, reject, reject, reject the lie that you can advance the kingdom of God by your own skill or power. Reject false versions of God's kingdom that hold too tightly to earthly distinctions of class, race, politics, or national identity. Reject counterfeit joys that entice you with earthly grandeur, earthly riches, earthly success. Your identity, your security, and your delight are not to be found in the empty promises of this world. Open your eyes and see the greatness of God's work. described for us here. Give thanks. You have been made the recipient of that saving work. Do not doubt the continued accomplishment of his purpose. Rejoice. Break forth into singing. You have become the children of her who was once desolate, now united with her maker. You have become sons and daughters of Zion because you have become sons and daughters of the living God.